Hi there, and welcome to the Real Monica Adams podcast. I am so thrilled to be bringing this platform to you. This show is all about mental, physical, and spiritual health. For 25 years, I've been a personal trainer and a director of wellness and a transformation consultant. One of the things I've always seen in every client is a disconnect in the mental, physical, and spiritual aspect of life. I have long taught the balance of life and the triangle of life theory of making sure that all three of those are taken care of. In today's episode, our very first that we're launching, I'm sitting down with a gentleman, Lemmy Pulliam, and in his life, he was body shamed. He almost completely stopped doing for the world one of his greatest talents, and that is this beautiful voice. I hope you enjoy this. This was during one of my life coaching classes that I had. I'm bringing it to you like I brought it to my guest. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you really understand how you need the balance of life. I want to know, were you singing as a little boy? Did you have a microphone or a hairbrush like I did when I was a little girl in your hand when you were growing up? Well, I, I grew up singing in church. Uh, I'm the son of, of a preacher. My late father was a preacher. And my mom was very busy in the, in the ministry as well. But I grew up singing in church, singing uh, with the, the youth group. You know, that's where I kind of discovered I had a somewhat of a voice was as a youngster. And, you know, that the voice had a the power to move people. I learned that from my my late uncle, who was a kind of a, a well-known uh, in this area, well-known gospel singer, you know, who I would sit and just watch in awe as as he would whip a church into a frenzy with, you know, with a song that's, you know, a three minute long song and it could last 20 minutes, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it would I learned early on how how the voice could could move people. Um, oh yeah. So it was, you know, that's how I got my early start was in gospel music, you know, and then in middle school, I joined the school choir because that's where my friends were. And that's where I wanted to be uh, was with my friends, uh, not because I wanted to be in choir, but it was there that I, you know, just kind of stayed in the shadows a bit for a while, for as long as I could and, and through middle school and into high school. And it was at some point in high school that my music teacher heard something in my voice and kind of pulled me aside after class one day and said, you know, have you ever heard of opera? You know, no. <laughs> and, uh, so she hands me a piece of sheet music and a cassette tape and asked me to bring it home and listen to it and see if I could learn it. And I did. And I've been been hooked ever since. What was that? It was a piece called Una Furtiva Lagrima, which means a furtive tear. And it's from an opera called The Elixir of Love by Donizetti. And it was, uh, she gave me that piece of music and a recording of Luciano Pavarotti singing it. Uh, and I love him. I was, and I was hooked from, from that point on. If you had to choose, are you a bigger Pavarotti fan or I love Andrea Bocelli? Uh, definitely Pavarotti. Really? Okay, why? Yeah. He's, in the boxing world, they have what they call the undisputed champions. <laughs> he's he's the undisputed champion of tenors. Okay. It's it's okay. you know the voice is is instantly recognizable no matter what he's singing, and he's just such a charismatic individual that you couldn't help but love him and love everything he did. So again, you get it introduced. Uh, somebody sees something in you. That's the thing that I really love is when people believe in us. Someone sees something. They want to pull that passion off. They want to take you on a path that maybe you're uncomfortable with. And then all of a sudden right. you're like, wow. And it connects and attaches to you. So where did you go from there? She wanted me to learn this piece of music for what we have in here, Missouri, which is called solo and ensemble competition, where you would take bits of music, band students, choir students would take music 
and prepare it to sing before a judge on a district level. And if you receive a certain score at district level, that gives you the ability to take it to the state level, uh, where you would then go before a different set of judges who would then rate you on one, from one to five, you know, excellent to whatever. So it was basically we learned it for that purpose. And I studied it and learned it and we took it to the districts. And it was at districts where I sang the piece and these were all blind judgings. The judges could not see who was singing for them. We could not see the judges. And we went in and my teacher and I, we sang my two songs, including the, the Una Furtiva Lagrima. And we walked out of the room. And as we were walking a bit up the hall, the door of the room flings open and the person who I'm assuming was at the time was the judge, which I now know was the judge, is standing at the door. And she just basically yells into the hallway, whoever was just in the room singing, please come back here at the end of the day. <laughs> and, you know, so we kind of looked at each other and I think, I think, I think she meant us. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> so we went back and uh, after she had submitted all of her scores and stuff for the day and was re released of her, her judging duties, she wanted to sit down and, and talk to us. And she's the one who introduced me to the person who would eventually be my, my first formal vocal teacher. And also to the school where I ended up going to college. And then you go to college and I've, I've looked at you, you had a storied career, but the career and one of the, one of the messages I really wanted you to drive home is this next part. So you go along and I've seen different awards you've gotten. I've seen the different aspects of where you've sung, but what I want to come to is where you stop. And if you are so passionate and you have someone people that are behind you and believing in you and you've got this beautiful voice and you're just having it form more and more and more it comes to a screeching halt mm -hmm. because as you start to look into different aspects and you're trying to get different parts what happens to you you know i would i was on the, the same path as most of my colleagues after school doing the, the young artist circuit and doing auditions and but you know it was in that process where there became a pattern of me being I was constantly praised for my voice, but then there was always come the but afterwards. And it was usually always something to do with body size or body weight or not necessarily, you know, them thinking I may not be a believable character on stage um, mm -hmm. or them thinking that because of my body size, I can only play a comedic character on stage to make people laugh. So it became, you know, after several years of, of dealing with this, I, you know, of being relegated to kind of secondary roles in smaller regional houses and things of that nature, when I knew I had what it took to be singing and should be singing leading roles, it took all of the, the joy out of singing for me. And, Absolutely. and I made myself a promise early on that if, if this ever stops being fun, I, I'm going to do something else. And I remember in the last contract I, I sang, we were in the middle of rehearsal leading into the week before performances. And I looked around and I said, you know what? I'm not enjoying this anymore. Mm. I, I, you know, I didn't have the drive. You know, I had recently also lost my grandmother around that time period, who was one of my biggest supporters. And so I was, you know, I was already dealing with, with that. And, but it just, you know, it came to the point where I was like, okay, it's, it's time to, to, to hold true to the promise I made to myself. And uh, I walked away. What year was that? That was in two, the uh, late 99, early 2000. 
So let me, when that gets taken away from you, and I know you said it wasn't fun anymore, but do you feel a void? Cause you had such a passion. You had people believing in you. And then you have people body shaming you and it has nothing to do with your vocal talent. And you're looking at the world saying, why are you so against me? Of course, you're going to feel the weight of that burden on your shoulders of this yeah. isn't fun. You know, why are people not believing in me? There was you, you have, there was you're making a decision for possibly being away from it forever. Yeah, there, there was a there was a bit of a void. You know, initially I said, you know, maybe I'll take six months, you know, because a lot of the things they were saying, oh, you know, you have such a wonderful voice. Why don't you come back to us when you've lost 50 pounds or, oh. you know, something of that nature. So I, you know, I said, maybe I'll take six months and see what happens and, and uh, we'll go from there. But that six months turned into 12 years as life just kind of happened. You know, I, I was uh, still based here in Kennett. I ended up eventually moving to St. Louis, where I worked. A friend of mine, my one of my sister's best friends, got me a job in her company uh, at a collection firm. Uh, so I started working in collections. And, and <laughs> that, uh, that, of course, I loved it. They were like, he's going to bully him. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, I was not your typical collector. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't one of those people who could call and just berate people on the phone and be like, pay your bills, pay your bills. <laughs> exactly. You know, but I was surrounded by those people who were like that. You know, it was yeah. constantly, you know, so my supervisor would come over and she's like, I just want to make sure you're you're actually talking on the phone because we never hear you talking. I was like, yeah, I don't scream at people like some of these other people do. You know, <laughs> I call, I talk to people the way I would expect someone to speak to me if they were to call me. Um, See, that's because you've always had respect in you. Yeah, I was taught it from an early age. You know, my parents, that was, that was a big thing in our household was, 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 was respect. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so I was able to produce numbers in the same manner that many of their top people were but in my own way and they would try to kind of get me to rev it up a little bit sometimes but I just kind of fought back and said no that's not my style and they finally left me alone one day when uh, my supervisor took an account from one of my colleagues who had been dealing with it for about six months and it was a, I think it was close to about forty thousand dollar debt and we were reaching the point to where it was about to be referred for legal activity. And she says, well, you know, they've been working on this for a while. See what you can do with it. So I called the guy called and left a message for the person, not expecting to get a call back, but I got a call back and we just proceeded to have a conversation, you know, and talked about the debt, talked about how he ended up getting to that point. And then I presented them with the options that we could to do to help them get rid of it. And I wasn't expecting to get anything out of it. But at the end of the conversation, he says, you know what? I appreciate the fact that you've called and spoken to me like a person and not berated me or belittled me for having an outstanding debt. And, you know, because this is, this is part of life. Everyone has debt at some point. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. And he said, I'm, I'm selling one of my properties next week and I will call you back and I will pay this off in full. Huh. And so I said, well, you know, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear you're going to do that next week. I said, but how about we do this in good faith? Why don't you post data check with me right now for, and we'll post data two weeks from today to allow you time to go through your closing. And then if anything happens with your closing, you can call me back and we can cancel this. But if the closing goes through, we have this on record to show your, show them that you're wanting to get this taken care of. And he said, okay, 
we can do that. I got the check. Two weeks later, actually less than a week, two weeks later, he calls and said, oh, you don't have to wait. You can go ahead and process that check now if you'd like. Yeah, I love it. And from that point on, I never had any more issues with my supervisor and my style of collecting. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so, kind, it was, let me, kindness goes a long way. And see how you just change that person? It really does. Yeah, it really it does. Well, the funny thing is I read, so you, you were doing collections. Then did you do some type of security? I, I did. I went in after leaving collections and uh, I ended up working for Clear Channel Entertainment. Okay, uh, yeah. Who who's now known as Live Nation, who ran um, concert venues in, amphithe in the amphitheater in the St. Louis area. I worked for them for several years and eventually that led to me starting my own firm in St. Louis. And we were, it basically came about because we were, as a staff from Clear Nation, we were doing outside events, but they no longer wanted to take on that liability. And so my boss called me in one day and said, you know, if you were to start your own company, we've got quite a few contracts that you could probably just pick up from us right away. And I wouldn't be mad if you were to kind of cotton pick through our staff to for people you'd like to have work for you. You know, they're already licensed. We've already paid for their licensing. All they'd have to do is go down and get a license in your company's name and you'd be ready to go. And I was like, okay, that sounds, sounds like a pretty good deal. You know, so I started my own firm um, with a couple of friends and within a week of our formation, we had some, some of the largest contracts and in the St. Louis area, doing the you know security for the Mardi Gras parade, we did the security for the Cardinals Victory Parade during the last their last World Series win. A lot of the festivals downtown, the Rib America Festival, the Fair St. Louis, we were part of the security team for that. You know, it was just you know taste of St. Louis. We were everywhere uh, in just a short period of time. It was one of my favorite you know favorite times was during those years of doing that and. You know, and uh, it was always something I'd been interested in as a kid. I, you know, had been sort of obsessed with the Secret Service and, you know, that type of security. And, you know, here we are having the opportunity to do the same thing with these special events. And we were also doing security for some of our celebrity clients and concert tours and, and things of that nature. So it was, a, it was a lot of fun to, you know, to still be involved in entertainment in some form, but not having to be the one center stage. Absolutely. And then, and then Lemmy, so I see this tweet go out by the former first lady. So how are you connected to the Obamas? <laughs> well, I ended up in 2007, in the midst while I was working my firm, I received a call from a friend of mine back in Kennett, here in Kennett. And she said, you know, I've, I've got a phone call from, from a friend of mine, and they're looking for field organizers for their for a presidential campaign. And I, of course, I gave them your name. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, you know, I'll wait and see if I hear from them. At the time I was, I was in the process, I was volunteering for Hillary Clinton's campaign at the time. And so I got a call from a young man and he introduced himself. He goes, you know, I'm a deputy field director for, with the Obama campaign. And we're starting up our Missouri leg of the, of the campaign. And we, you know, we've been looking around and, and, and searching for field organizers, and your name has come up several times from different people across the state. You know, he said, how would, would you be interested in working for the Obama campaign? I said, <laughs> you know, I really don't know anything about the guy, you know, but, you know, you do realize I'm a Hillary supporter, right? And he goes, 
Yes, <laughs> we do. Right. Yes, we do. He goes, and that's part of the reason why we want you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I said, okay, as long as you're cool with that, I can uh, go go along with it. And agreed to join the campaign. Got to know Roy Roberts, then Senator Obama, and was just you know blown away with him as a person. You know, had the opportunity to work here in my home area to to help get him elected. I oversaw the field field operations for five counties in southeastern Missouri in the Boot Hill. And yeah, it was just a, a great, great moment to to be able to share with my my parents and uh, my my late grandmother's closest friend who was able to vote for him twice, once at the age of 100 and, oh, and, again, wow. at the, and again at the age of 104. Oh my goodness. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. To, to share that experience with them and to, it was it was a it was pretty awesome. Well, but that was I, my that was how I got connected with the Obamas. I never had opportunity to meet them. I've never been in the same room with them or spoken to them. So this tweet and the Instagram posts and Facebook posts from from Mrs. Obama came as a complete surprise, a complete shock. I actually believe it at first. I woke up that morning and a friend of mine who I'd gone to school with sent me an inbox message and it was just a link. You know how sometimes you get these random links in your in your yep. inbox. And I'm like, I'm not clicking that. I'm right, not, it's a hack. Damn, <laughs> I'm not gonna click that. So I sent him a message. I said, I think you might have been your security might have been compromised. You might want to change your password. I'm getting these random links from you. And he's like, No, 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 no. I sent that. You need to go see it. And I said, what is it? He goes, okay, just go to Twitter and type in Michelle Obama. <laughs> so I went and I typed in her name and I'm looking through her timeline. And next thing I know, I see my face <laughs> and a message that she had typed with my name in it. And I'm like, wait, what is Michelle Obama just tweeted my New York times article. They just, they had recently did a feature on me in the New York times. And, you know, she had chosen me as one of the people she wanted to highlight as part of her Black History Month celebration. And so I was completely shocked to see this there. And then I, you know, within a couple of minutes of seeing it, my phone started dinging with text messages and other family and friends and um, people I hadn't heard from in years. And then I look and I see this extensive post that she had written on her Instagram and Facebook pages. Tell us about the whole national anthem story. We were, you know, I was working on the campaign and I was doing a couple of events and we had uh, a few surrogates who were coming to town. And usually when we had surrogates from the main campaign come in, we'd like to, you know, add a little pomp and circumstance to the event and, with the, you know, throw in the national anthem and, um, and do some other things. And so I had invited a, a local beauty queen who I'd known and had had during the year or two where I'd worked in the school system to with the choir program, had her in music class. So I knew she could sing and invited her to come and sing the national anthem. Well, about 45 minutes before the event started, I get a call. I don't think I can do it. I'm, I, I'm, I don't, I'm too nervous. I can't do it. I, you know, not in front of that big of a crew. So I was like, okay. So I went to my boss and I said, okay, we're going to have to next the national anthem. You know, she called, She's got cold feet. She doesn't want to do it in front of an audience. And at first he was like, okay, cool. And then about not long after he walks up to me, he comes and stands next to me. And he's just like, didn't I read on your resume that you used to be an opera singer? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, why don't you sing the national anthem? 
said, well, it's been at this point about seven and a half, eight years since I'd sung in front of an audience and sung in, in public. So, you know, I was not practiced. I had not done much of anything. So I had no clue what would come out sound wise of my mouth. Um, <laughs> But he left me little choice. And so I, I ran off to try to find a key that I could sing this in without embarrassing myself, without it being too low or too high. But it's a difficult song to find the, that type of key in because the range of the song is, you know, it's more than an octave in, in range to sing this piece. It's more difficult than some of the operatic repertoire that I sing. So I, I found a fairly comfortable key, went about and sang it the first time. It wasn't that great. but it was it was enough to make me that I was starting to realize that something about my voice had changed in those those few years that I hadn't been singing in what way the voice had matured the timbre of the voice had changed uh and it became Mm -hmm. more more a a darker tone or as some people say more burnished in tone and so that that kind of piqued my interest and then I had a second opportunity to sing the anthem at one of our staff retreats during the campaign. And I had a little bit more warning for this one. So I was able to kind of at least warm the voice up a little bit and kind of know what key I was going to do it then. And so it was in doing that, that someone recorded it Mm. it to me afterwards that I was able to listen to it. And I said, Oh, okay. This voice is much more interesting than I remember. This is not the the 21 year old, you know, Lemmy voice that, that I remember. I'd be interested to see where this could take me. And so once the campaign was over, I began secretly working on my own, retraining myself vocally. I was lucky to have videotapes of my voice lessons from college. Um, Worked with some of those. And when I ran out of tapes, I reached out to some friends to look for a voice teacher and I found a wonderful teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, which was not far from, you know, it's an hour, 20 minute drive from Kennett and began working with her and was working with her for several years before she, she finally kind of like a mother hen said, you know, I really enjoy teaching you these voice lessons and, you know, the money's good, blah, 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 blah. She goes, but you really need to get out and do something with this. Hmm. And so she kind of, kicked me out of the nest and, <laughs> and, and said, you know, get out there and find something to do and do it. So I found a competition that was being presented by the National Opera Association. And just so happened that year that their conference was going to be in Memphis, which was great, which meant I didn't have to do much traveling. I applied, submitted my recordings that they needed to for their preliminary rounds and was chosen as a finalist. And I was invited to their conference in Memphis. They put us up in a hotel and got to rehearse with some of the top pianists in in the country who were there to accompany us. We were each told to prepare five pieces and that we could sing our first choice would be would be our first choice, the first piece. And then the judges would ask to hear part of a second piece. So we knew we would get to sing one and maybe part of another song. And for much of the competition, that's what happened. Everyone would come out, they would sing their first piece. 
they would start a second piece and then at some point one of the judges would kind of raise their hand and say thank you and they would walk off i happened to be the last contestant in the competition for the for the category that i was in i was in the um it was kind of like a for for artists who were kind of on the cusp of of their career basically okay so i sang my first piece and it went really well. I uh, was happy that it, that it was with it, how it went. The judges picked their second piece. And I started singing the second piece. And I'm singing and singing and singing and waiting for that hand to go up. Exactly. <laughs> When's the gong show going to take me off stage? Uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I've sung enough. I'm ready to get off the stage now. You know? And then the, and the hands never went up. So I sang the entire second piece as I was turned and looked nodded at my pianist to say thank you to get ready to walk off the judges then the hand went up and, she, and one of the judges said we'd like to hear this piece uh -huh. so they asked for the third piece so okay sang the third piece again nodded at my pianist to say thank you to get ready to walk off and then another judge said oh can we hear this this piece they wanted a lemmy concert <laughs> <laughs> so i sang the fourth piece and was just praying that that would be it. Cause I, <laughs> at that point I hadn't had a chance to sing all five of them in a row like that. But surely enough, when I got done, the third judge goes, why don't we just go ahead and hear the fifth one? And the fifth one was yeah, the most difficult of all of them. <laughs> um, so I would, you know, at that point I was like, okay, this is like work. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a suit, I'm in a tie. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm under the stage lights. I'm burning yeah. up. I'm, you know, I'm sweating. I was, and I finally said, "Okay, do you guys mind if I take off my jacket and tie at this point?" And they're like, "Whatever you need to do." So I take off my tie, take off my jacket, and we go off into the fifth song. And I sing the entire fifth song, and grab my jacket, my tie, and I walk off the stage. And the other contestants were all sitting backstage. And a couple of whom were, were friends of mine. And they looked at me and he goes, well, we know who just won this competition. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Lemmy goes through and, and picks up, gets back into singing. And his his path takes him, you know, to some really incredible things. When, when Carl wrote me and said, I know you're going to want to talk to this guy. This is a good friend of mine. He, uh, Lemmy actually did just sing at his father-in-law's funeral and he had just passed away within the last couple of months. Um, but he sent me a text and he's like, you, you, you got to hear this guy. And so he started sending me things and I was like, absolutely. So Lemmy and I talked, told him I wanted to come on, did not know this particular piece. I was just so excited for him to say, oh my gosh, okay, here's the storied career. And then it gets taken away. And then all of a sudden it goes even higher. And then Carnegie Hall, tell me about Carnegie Hall. As I'm excited to hear the high wave of Carnegie Hall, he tells me what happens right before that. Tell us that. Well, it, it, even before Carnegie Hall, the, you know, the last, last year was, you know, for me, it was filled with many professional highs, but extreme personal lows. I made, I was scheduled to make my debut with the Cleveland Orchestra, um, which is one of the probably the best orchestras in, in the world. Definitely one of the top five of the best orchestras in the world. I was set to make my debut with them. I think it might have been May of last year. And so right before, within the two weeks beforehand, I, I came down with COVID. Um, after avoiding it for two and a half years, 
And then on Mother's Day of, of last year, my father passed away unexpectedly. And so, you know, in planning for his services, it was it basically required, uh, you know, because my family was pretty adamant that they wanted me to still go to Cleveland for this debut. We ended up basically planning his services around uh, my travel needs when I needed to be in Cleveland. So we, you know, had his services and within two hours of the, the funeral being over, I was in my car driving to St. Louis to catch one of the last flights that could get me to Cleveland on time for the rehearsals. Uh, So it was it was it was a tough thing, but it was it was great to be in in Cleveland to be surrounded by some friends and caring colleagues who who really kind of helped me through that that time period. So we go into from Cleveland to a debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Then I get invited to to be an understudy or a cover, as we call it in in opera, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. So I was there for two and a half months. And I was basically their insurance plan in case the person they had hired to sing the role of Radames and Aida got sick. I was there as their backup. So I had no guaranteed performances. You know, I was basically paid a fee to learn the role, learn all the staging and be ready to go at a moment's notice. So at every performance, I was sitting backstage 
you know, in in our little green room waiting for, you know, the word on if so-and-so is going to go on, if he's not going to go on. And I would sit there through the whole show until the very last scene. And I would pack up and I would leave to kind of beat the crowd rush out. When I left to go to New York, we were dealing with my eldest sister being very ill. And I arrived in New York on November the 10th. And my sister passed away on November the 14th. And so I, you know, was dealing with that. And it was, that was extremely difficult in that I was unable to attend her funeral. I was, I came home for several days, but I had to be back in New York because of the contractual obligations for uh, several important rehearsals. So I had to, I had to miss her, her funeral. And it was, it was difficult to deal with because I remember sitting in rehearsal. I was actually sitting in a rehearsal during the time that her funeral was actually going on and was texting back and forth with one of my other sisters. We just so happened to get a break. And so I was sitting there with one of my colleagues who kind of who knew what was going on. Again, it was my, my colleagues and friends who got me through the moment to be able to do um, the final viewing for my sister via FaceTime, sat in the, uh, the rehearsal space. It was probably one of the most difficult moments I've ever had to, had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the desire to want to be there with my family and not being able to be there, to be there for my mother uh, and not being able to be there was just, was very, very difficult to deal with. But, you know, through the many prayers from people who were coming in for us and, and my own personal faith, I was able to get to get through it. When a couple weeks later, I just remember being scared of not being really prepared enough for if I were to go on because our rehearsals weren't as, we didn't get as much rehearsal as the main cast people did. Mm-hmm. And so I remember praying. I said, you know, if I'm going to have to go on, please, God, just let me give me some way of getting <laughs> enough stage time in order to to be prepared. And all of a sudden, the director turns around and sees me, goes, oh, great, you're here. Come up on stage. Come up on stage. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, why do you need me on stage? And he goes, no, 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 we got, got to start rehearsal. You need, we need you on stage right now. Brian's stuck on the train right now. And, you know, he's stuck on the subway. He's not going to be here for a little bit, but we got to start rehearsal. And, you know, I had never stepped foot on the stage of the Met at that point. And so I had no idea where to go, no idea how to get to where he wanted me to go. And finally, someone points me to this little door off to the side, and I walk in and up these creaky little stairs, and somehow I'm up on the stage. And he's like, oh, he goes, Brian's stuck on the subway. You know, we want you to start. We're going to start at the top of the opera. You'll sing the the top of the opera is where my character sings his big aria. And it's one of the most difficult arias in all of opera, and you have to sing it within five minutes you get to sing two lines and then you delve into this opera this aria so you don't get much time to warm up and so we start the rehearsal and he says you know we're gonna do we're just gonna start here you've done this scene before we've done it many times so you know it i said okay and so then he turns me around and all i see is this four thousand seat opera house in front of me a view that i had dreamed of seeing since I was like 17, 18 years old, to stand on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera and sing. I sang it 
full voice because I was like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever have this opportunity again. Exactly. To stand on this stage. Seize so, that moment. Let me seize yeah. it. <laughs> and you know, Sai sang, and once Ari was done, everyone clapped, and I look over, and Brian's standing in the wings, and he's clapping, and and uh, little did I know he he had arrived in the middle of the aria, and the director had was beckoning for him to come on stage to to take over the scene and he was like no i'm not going to steal this moment from him you know this is his moment let him have it when he's done then i can come out and do my thing and he he allowed me that moment and it was probably one of the biggest moments of my life because there was a gentleman in our cast who has sung he had sung, as of now, he sung over 500 performances at the Met. And he came up to me afterwards and he goes, you know, I've been singing here at the Met for 30 plus years. I've sung with everyone you can think of. I've sung with Pavarotti. I've sung with Domingo. I've sung with, with you know, with Leontine Price, all of the Joan Sutherland. I've sung with all the great names in opera. And I just want to tell you, I've never heard anybody in my 30 years sitting like that at 10 o'clock in the morning on the stage of the next ball. <laughs> exactly. You were ready. <laughs> and, you know, and that was, you know, one of the best compliments I've ever, I've ever received. And uh, little did I know it was, it was just the beginning. Um, I had the opportunity to, a couple of days later to sing the full final dress rehearsal, which I'm still shocked that that actually happened because the the brand the tenor came down with not COVID but what was RSV was which was the oh, other yeah. uh, he had a, a a case of RSV and had to back out of that so I you know I had prayed for this time to have on stage if I needed it to be able to go on and here I was now having to sing the full final dress rehearsal which you do as if it were a performance from start to beginning you know full costumes full makeup everything which was such a wonderful experience and you know after having to do the, the little piano thing with the piano and on stage to now get a chance to sing it on stage with the orchestra was was even a bigger dream you know and I said okay that's I you know if I never get to sing this role in an actual performance, I can say I've sung it on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. I've sung this whole role on the Metropolitan mm-hmm. Opera stage. On December 17th, mm-hmm. at about 1.15, in the afternoon, I got a phone call, which was normal on a show day, because they would always call to check to see where I would be on during showtime and to make sure I would be within 10 minutes of the theater in case mm-hmm. anything happened. And I said, well, of course, I'll actually be in the theater. So that's my plan. They hang up. About 20 minutes later, I get another phone call from someone else. Hi, Lemmy, this is so-and-so from Metropolitan Opera. Just wanted to call and see how you're feeling today. I was like, I'm doing well. I've already done my check-in, you know, so they know where I'm going to be and and uh, and whatnot. And he goes, okay, well, um, I just wanted to touch base with you because I didn't want you to be blindsided. But we're starting to hear rumors that Mr. Jade is is not feeling well but we're not sure what's going to happen tonight. But I just wanted to give you a heads up just to be, you know, just so you're aware. And I was like, okay, thank you. Great. That's, that's wonderful to know. And so we hung up and five minutes later, I get a call from someone else at the Met. 
I'm like, hi, Lemmy, this is so-and-so. We're just checking in, see how you're doing. I was like, okay, this is... <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine, you know, and, and I finally said, you know what, here's what we'll do since we don't know what's going to happen. I said, I'll show up this evening at Brian's regular call time so that way when he's supposed to be there, I'll be there. And that way, if he decides he doesn't want to go on, then I'll be there and, you know, we won't have to delay the show. Um, you're officially going on tonight (laughs) and I said oh okay great I'm ready you know and she stops for a second and she says I I don't know if she looked at something and read something but then she was like oh my god and I was like yes she goes this is going to be your your Metropolitan Opera debut (laughs) and I said yeah it's my debut and she said and this is also your first time singing this role in an opera house and I was like yeah this is my role in opera you know my my role in house debut so I was like yeah so it's double stressful you know (laughs) I was hoping that I wouldn't have to sing this for the first time at the Met but here we are Um, yeah exactly it's time to do it yeah I, I hung up the phone I immediately said a little prayer I called my mom and told her what was going on and 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 explain to her and she's like what what do you mean what do you i'm like i'm i'm <laughs> thinking at the mat tonight i'm gonna make my <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i was like i need you to call everybody else all of my siblings i'm i'm the youngest of 10 siblings wow uh, there were five boys five girls um and i said i need you to call everybody and tell them what's going on um because i gotta save my voice i can't be talking to everybody right now but yeah. it was it was a truly January, uh, December 17th, 2022 was, was truly a magical evening for me. It was a dream that I had dreamt of for, for many years to stand on that stage, to stand in front of that historic gold curtain, to take your bows. You know, I couldn't help but think of all of the, the greats like Pavarotti who had walked those same paths that I was that I was walking that night to make my stage entrances one of the most touching things I received was from him from one of the stagehands Pavarotti was a very superstitious he was extremely superstitious and before each performance he would wander around backstage and he would look for a bent nail so he looked for <laughs> a crooked nail and that was his kind of his sign that he would have the luck he needed to to do a good performance that night really i was sitting sitting backstage waiting for things to start and one of the stage crew members walked up to me and he goes you know hey i heard it's your debut tonight we just wanted to wish you luck and and uh i hope this will help and he hands me a bent nail that he had oh no way and I just kind of looked at it and smiled and he goes do you know the significance of this and I was like yeah I'm very familiar <laughs> with, with the significance behind this and, and you have you know you have no idea how much it means to me because you know yeah so I got that one at the beginning of the opera about halfway through some of the chorus members brought me a second bent nail that they had found <laughs>
from one historic venue in the Metropolitan Opera, and then the less, Carnegie Hall, and then less month, month less than a month okay. later, to make my debut in Carnegie Hall, was just Incredible. beyond a, a dream, and it made it all the more special because I was actually for Carnegie Hall. I was actually having my entire family be in attendance. My mom, all my siblings, uh, some of my nieces and nephews, and some extended family members, and it was just, yeah, it was a really to just to think that, you know, these are places that I'd only dreamt of singing in, and to to show up and see your name on the, on on the board out front, and then you know, and on the marquee, and and it's just, yeah, it's, I. You know, and so we're we're still onward and upward from there. You know, there's still many more dreams for, to fulfill. And... Yes, there are. Yeah. Well, and see, and this is why I wanted to bring Limmy on. And I know so many of you, you you see other people doing things, and then you look and think, could that be me? And and many times, Limmy, what happened to you? People will let that steer the rest of their life, and they will let somebody have power over them. They'll let them squash them. They'll tell you, you're not good enough you know, you're too fat, you're ugly, you're not right for this. And then someone believes that. And that forever, either as a child or as an adult, or they get the two double whammies that they're constantly told, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And you find your way back, God was guiding you. Did I read somewhere that you just became just overcome with emotion and just just feeling them there with you? I, I I did. It was one of those moments where in the, during the the bows at the Metropolitan Opera at the end of the night on December 17th, when we came out for our bows, and then I came out from when I came out for my solo bow, it was at that moment that I just, you know, I looked out into the audience and everyone was, was standing. Mm. It was at that moment that I couldn't help but think about how how proud my dad and my sister would be and mm. how and it just the the emotions that I held back for so long just get you know just kind of begin to overflow right there on the stage and you know and it's one of those moments where you know as as artists we're we're always allowing ourselves to be vulnerable in front of the audience but this was probably my most vulnerable moment ever but it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't taken that time away from from singing. Uh, when I first started singing again, I looked back on that time as kind of a wasted time. But the more I thought about it, because during that time, I actually learned that I am enough. And that no matter what others may think, I know what I'm capable of. And that I learned, I learned to love myself during that time. Mm, I love and it beforehand when I would go into a room to audition for people one of the things I realized is I was walking in already with a mindset of defeat because I knew that discussion of my body size was going to happen and it was only a matter of time and so I was I wasn't walking into a room with the confidence that I needed to be successful at that time but upon returning later on I started to approach to broach that subject on my own terms. I wouldn't wait for other people to bring it up. I would bring it up myself. Okay. I'm happy to be here audition for you. If body size or anything of that nature is going to be a problem for you, we need to discuss that now as not to waste mine or your time. Yeah. 
you know, yep. I walk into a room now knowing I belong there before I would walk in wanting to kind of shrink myself to take up as little space as possible. Mm-hmm. I walk into a room now, I want to eat up as much oxygen in that room <laughs> as I can, you know, if You're I'm in a good mood, life now. Yeah, if I give, if I'm in a good mood, I'll save enough for you to survive over there in that corner. <laughs> <laughs> But otherwise, this is my room. This is my stage. I belong here. And there's nothing you can say that can tell me any different. Yeah. I'm just so thrilled of the course. If you're faith-based, you have to see God's hand in this and the way the shifts and the patterns were and how he gets brought back. And some people don't get brought back. Some people don't ever believe in themselves. The most powerful thing he probably said was, I am enough. But will you sing a little something for us? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> See, I want to put you on the spot. <laughs> God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, wide with forests. Look, and I put him on the spot. We did not rehearse that. But see, what did you say? You always have to be ready. You never know when you're going to get the chance. <laughs> yeah. so you got to stay ready. You don't have to get ready. That's right. You got to grab yeah. the bull by the horns and go. Lemmy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And what an incredible story. And-
wasn't he just incredible? I hope this has given you aha moments to never let anyone squash your dreams. We are so looking forward to bringing you more in the balance of life, many things that will affect you mentally, physically, and spiritually. I look forward to taking you along the journey.